0: The word of the Lord is flawless, and his ways are perfect. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Let us listen to the word of God and hear what the scripture is saying to the church today. Today's scripture is found in the book of Luke, starting with chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
1: So we've been learning about spiritual beings in the Bible, and I still have a lot of questions about the bad ones. Well, great. Let's talk about the Satan and demons in the story of the Bible. So let's start in the beginning. In Genesis 1, God creates a beautiful, ordered reality out of darkness and disorder, so that life can flourish. He appoints humans as his representatives to rule over all of it, and seven times, God calls it good. Yeah, I experience that kind of goodness often in the world, in things like beauty and truth, love and generosity. But in Genesis 3, we meet a creature who's in a state of rebellion against his creator. We're not told yet why or how he rebels, but he's on a mission to ruin God's good world for other creatures. This thing is trouble. Yeah, this creature is the Bible's first portrait of evil. It distorts what God has purposed for good, ruining and dragging creation back into darkness and disorder. So the humans join the spiritual rebel, which leads them back into chaos and death. And from this point on, the human rebellion is interwoven with a spiritual rebellion. And the biblical story shows how this happens over and over again. Okay, but wait, we're getting all this from a slithering snake? Well, there are clues in the story that it's more than just a snake. Remember, Eden is a high place where the earth and its creatures overlap with heaven and its creatures. So the snake could be a spiritual being. Well, Genesis 3 points in that direction, and then later biblical authors fill in the picture. Like when the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, he's surrounded and being praised by the spiritual beings. Yeah, these are the cherubim around God's throne. But when Isaiah sees these creatures, he describes them as seraphim, which in Hebrew means... Ah, so the snake is like a former staff member in God's throne room. So why is he talking to the humans? Well, the prophet Ezekiel understood this figure as a spiritual rebel who didn't want to live under God's wisdom and authority. He wanted to be God. Ah, right. That's the same temptation the snake puts before Adam and Eve. Exactly. He says they could rule the world like God, but by their own wisdom. So they're all kicked out of the garden. Yeah, God says this rebel will now crawl on its belly. Where does it go after this? Well, the biblical authors offer subtle clues where this being is at work behind the scenes, animating division and hatred between humans. They also use a variety of images to describe this being. It's a snake, or a sea dragon, or a dark desert creature, or the king of death in the grave. He's also given many titles, like tempter, or the evil one, or the devil, which in Greek means the slanderer. But his name is Satan, right? Actually, no. Satan is not a name. It's another one of these titles, which is why in Hebrew it has the word the in front of it. The Satan means the adversary, because he isn't for anything, rather he's anti-everything working through lies to drag us back into darkness and disorder. That's intense. Now, what about these other spiritual rebels in the Bible called demons? What are they all about? Okay, so remember the concept of God's heavenly staff team, the divine council, or the sons of God. In the Hebrew scriptures, we're told that some of these rebelled too. When did that happen? Multiple times, actually. After the snake comes the rebellion of the sons of God in Genesis 6 we're told that they have sex with women, who then give birth to violent warrior giants. Oh right, the Nephilim. These are probably the strangest characters in the whole Bible. Well, strange from your point of view. But ancient readers knew exactly what was going on. The ancient kingdoms around Israel claimed to be founded and protected by giant warrior kings who were part human, part God, and filled with divine wisdom. Ah, I see, so the biblical authors are saying, hey, those warrior kings, they shouldn't be honored. Right, in the story, they're portrayed as human rebels who are captive to spiritual evil, spreading their violence in God's good world. Yeah, one of those kings in Genesis 10 goes on to build the city of Babylon. Yes, Nimrod, whose name sounds like the Hebrew word for rebel, and his kingdom leads to the next rebellion where humans exalt themselves in Babylon. But God scatters that rebellion. And when Moses in Deuteronomy looks back at that story, he says that's the moment when God handed over the nations to worship the rebel host of heaven, the gods of money, sex, and military power. Moses is the first one to call them demons, that is, lesser spiritual beings. So demons are spiritual forces at work behind corrupt human power structures. Yes, but in the Bible, they also work on the personal level, animating and exploiting humanity's greed and selfishness, as well as the weakness of our mortal bodies. In the Bible, spiritual evil is at work in anything that drags God's good creation back into chaos, darkness, and death. So, this is why when Jesus arrives on the scene, he said his primary enemy is not human. Right. Jesus and his first followers viewed all the pain and suffering in God's good world as a sign of its captivity to death and spiritual evil. But they didn't think this was the end of the story. Right. Jesus knew that the only way out of this cosmic ruin is to overcome evil and death itself, even if it costs everything.
2: Good morning. I'm glad you've chosen to worship with us, whether it's on site and person or whether you're worshiping with us online. We're glad you're with us uh, this morning. We're going to be continuing the sermon series that we kicked off last week entitled The Unseen World. And you can probably connect the dots. We're looking at uh, the, the spiritual realm, the spiritual reality that's described in the scripture over and over and over. Uh, a world that's been in existence longer than our, our physical, material world. In this world, as we've seen in the video, as we see in scripture, as you heard last week, there are these spiritual beings and forces, some of them good, who want the best force, who are aligned with God, are good and loving and wise creator God. And some of them aligned with the forces of evil headed by the devil, the Satan, the accuser, a wicked, hateful being who seeks to destroy God's world. And most especially and particularly human beings, the crown of God's creation. Last week, we centered our message in the first few verses of Ephesians 6, where where Paul describes this battle. He writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we, we saw last week that, as we, as we know, that our, our primary enemy, our real enemy, is not other people. So often we get, we get caught up in that. That's what Satan wants us, to see others as our enemy. But Satan and his evil forces are our primary enemy. Uh, but we also were reminded that we don't need to be afraid, because uh, God, through Jesus Christ, has won the victory. Jesus has won the war. He's defeated Satan, sin, and death on the cross and through the tomb. And though the war is over... And Satan knows it. His goal is to pull down and destroy as many as possible with him before Christ returns. So this week, I thought it'd be beneficial for us to have a, a better understanding of our true enemy, of his goals and his strategies. I mean, it's always good to be prepared uh, when, when you go into, into a battle, into a competition of some sort, because there'll be times in our lives, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, when we'll be discouraged, when we'll be tempted... Um, when, we'll, when we'll feel accused or condemned, and we want to be prepared. So think of it this way. Say you're an athlete or a coach. Um, what do you do? You watch game film. You study your opponent. Uh, you look at their moves, their strategies, their weaknesses, their, their, the things that they like to do, their, their goals and strategies. You, so you're prepared for whatever they throw your way. It's the same in the military. You study the enemy. And how much more important is it for us to understand and to be prepared for the attacks of the enemy? So let's let's dig in. Um, We're going to take a look first at Ephesians, excuse me, Ezekiel 28, um, where Ezekiel prophesies against um, a king, the king of Tyre. And we don't know a lot about this king, but it's clear from the reading this that he's aligned with Satan, that he's given himself over to evil so much so that when, that, that when God speaks through Ezekiel to him, God is addressing Satan directly. Listen to how he's, he's described. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. You were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. So what, what can we know about Satan from this? God created him, okay, God created him, he's beautiful, he was beautiful, and he was wise, he was full of splendor, he was given great responsibility by God. But we're told he became proud and conceited and foolish and violent, and God just cast him out. The prophet Isaiah gives us a little bit more insight into, into what happened and, and why Satan rebelled. How you have fallen from heaven... Morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, "I will ascend to heaven; I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I will send above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High." So, so morning star is where the name Lucifer comes from. In Latin, Lucifer simply means bringer of of light. So, uh, so he was obviously, when he was created, he was a beautiful, radiant being full of, of light, but he becomes proud and vain. And we see here that what happens is he, he wants to overthrow God. He, he seeks to be God. He wants to take God's place, but he overestimates himself, and he underestimates God, and he's just cast out. Along with, we're told... In Revelation 12, a third of the angels, those become the demons and the powers and the principalities uh, of this world that, that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. Now, Jesus, uh, uh, when he walks this earth, it's clear that he 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 did battle with these these demons. We see him uh, kind of debating with some of the the Pharisees and Sadducees and leaders. And he talks to the disciples and tries to correct their thinking. But his primary enemy are are the demons, the forces of darkness. We see him perform exorcisms. Uh, We see him speak of Satan as the thief who's come to rob and steal and destroy. In Luke 10, Jesus tells the disciples that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So, so this is our adversary. What are the strategies that he deploys and how can, we, how can we respond? Well, the Bible gives him several names which identify his strategies. The deceiver, the accuser, the adversary, the destroyer, the prince of darkness, so let's look at a couple primary strategies uh, and then and, and see what we can learn from this. So first, he's the deceiver. He deceives and he lies. Strategy number one, he tries to get us to question the goodness of God and to question God's word. He wants to drive a wedge, in other words, between us and our creator. We see this when he's first introduced in the scriptures in Genesis 3. Listen to what he does. He said to the woman Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Did God really say? Did God mean that? Did you see what he does there? God did not say that they couldn't eat from any tree. God said they could only, that they could eat from every tree except for one. But Satan, he changes her focus. Instead of focusing on all the other trees in the garden that she could eat from, he turns her attention to the one thing, the one tree that she could not and should not have. He, he does that today still, doesn't he? So, Doug, did God really say that you can't have that, that you, you can't do that? And what happens when, 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 you, when you, you tell your, your child, you know, you can have everything here, but you can't do that. What do they want to do? They want to go there. They, they want to have that. And there are a lot of things that we can do as God's children. A lot of blessings. We have a lot of freedom. A lot of opportunities to to live and create and do and be in this world. But Satan turns our focus to the things that God in his wisdom and care has told us to avoid. Did God really say? So in this first interaction with with Eve... um, Eve says, well, there's, there's only one tree that we're supposed to avoid. And God said, there's a good reason for it, because we'll die if we eat from it. Now, remember, to this point, death has not entered the world. So Satan has laid his trap, and now he springs it with a less subtle attack. Satan says, basically, Eve, God's holding out on you. He's lying to you. You cannot trust what he says. You will not die. Eat from the tree and, your, tree and your eyes will be open to a new dimension and you'll be like God and you'll, you'll know good and you'll know evil. And it works. And he attempts to deceive us the same way. Did God really say that you should forgive your enemy? That you should love your enemy? But doesn't God know that how they've hurt you? Doesn't God know that they're not sorry that they do it again if given the chance? Did God really say I'm supposed to forgive them? Did God really say you should stay pure sexually? Doesn't he know that I'm alone and, and that, I, that I'm, I've, I've waited, I've been patient, I deserve love? Did God really say? Did God really say that you're to, to give up your life uh, for others in service, to be generous with your, your time and, and your resources, to think of others? Before yourself, Did God really say that? Doesn't he know that I've worked hard? Doesn't he know the challenges I've overcome? Doesn't he know that I, I need this, I deserve this? Doesn't he know that those folks over there, they've made a lot of bad choices? Did God really say that I, I need to pour out my life for them? And you see, when we start to question the goodness of God and we start to, to question his word, It's easier to disobey the will of God. Strategy number two. The accuser tries to get us to question our identity as children of God and to lose sight of and doubt God's grace. Have you ever wondered if God could forgive you? We we all probably have something in our mind. Boy, that was, man, that was a... Could God forgive me of that? Has a thought ever crossed your mind that you were past the point of no return? That you're without hope? Satan attacks us where we are most vulnerable. He accuses us. You're hopeless. You can't break that habit, that addiction. How many times have you tried to change? Just, just give up. There's something wrong with you fundamentally. He accuses us. You say you're a child of God. You sure don't act like one. If you truly love Jesus, you would not do that. You would not think that way. You would not say those things. You know better. You think God loves you? How could he? Satan wields accusations like like a paintbrush, applying coat after coat of guilt and regret and self-loathing and shame. Now, Now guilt, sometimes it's not a bad thing. It's guilt that we feel when we do something wrong, it's not a bad thing. It causes us, hopefully, to, to make amends, to ask for forgiveness, to get right with others and with God, to change. But shame, shame is when you feel bad about who you are. And Satan wants us to wallow in shame. He does not want us to see ourselves as children of God, saved by the blood of Christ, robed in the righteousness of Jesus. He does not want us to view ourselves as deeply loved, unconditionally loved by our Heavenly Father. Satan, he is the spirit of condemnation and the spirit of shame. But Romans 8 declares to us, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. In Satan, the accuser, he does not want us to think, he, he wants us to think that does not, that doesn't apply to us, that we're different or unique somehow, that we are beyond Redemption that we're flawed and, 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 and that we'll never change. Because you see, how we view ourselves and the way we think about ourselves, it determines our behaviors and it determines the trajectory of our lives. And if we think about ourselves and, and if we understand and believe that we are born again and new creations in Christ and that we are set free from sin through faith in Jesus, if we understand that, then we can have victory over sin. And so when Satan tries to accuse us, we can send him packing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's take a look now at uh, how Jesus responded to temptation when Satan attacked him. Uh, Luke chapter 4 was just read a few minutes ago by Sonia. And just to set the table right right after this scene in the first part of of, of Luke 4, Jesus goes to his hometown to, to announce the start of his ministry. He kind of says, this is why I've come. And he, I've come to fulfill this prophecy from the prophecy of, uh, in, in Isaiah. And, and they reject him. But before he does that, he goes in the desert for 40 days to fast and to pray. And, and 40 days in the desert, it seems to be a, a very significant thing in the scriptures because Moses fasted and prayed in the desert for 40 days. Elijah fasted and prayed in the desert for 40 years. And I think there's some significance here because remember that Moses was given the law by God. He represented the law. And Elijah was viewed as the greatest prophet. Why did Jesus come? He says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So Jesus goes into the desert and he would have been under tremendous spiritual stress. Uh, Satan wants to just kind of cut off, cut off Jesus right from the start. He wants to end this before it even gets started. And add to that to the fact that Jesus is fasting and he would have been very vulnerable, one would think. I know when I get hungry, I'm vulnerable, all right? And the devil comes to him in his first try. And he says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. And Matthew adds in his account, but on every word from the mouth of God. And Jesus here, he, he's quoting scripture. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. And Satan is trying to get Jesus to take a a shortcut, to to not trust that his Father will provide for him, that God will not meet his need. And and Satan knows that Jesus can do this. I mean, he knows who Jesus is. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus will feed thousands with a few loaves and fish. And so Satan tempts Jesus at the point of his need. Prove you're the Son of God. I'm not sure you are. I don't think you are. Prove it. And while you're at it, satisfy your hunger. Now, hunger is a legitimate need. But Satan often will take a legitimate need, and he will tempt us to meet that need in an illegitimate and sinful manner. For example, need to bolster your savings to provide security in retirement. It's a legitimate need. Right? Satan tempts us to take a shortcut, to cheat on our taxes, to not be generous with our resources, to, to take unfair advantage of customers or employees or business competitors. After all, we're just trying to level the playing field. A legitimate need met in an illegitimate way. Try, try companionship or Intimacy. Satan tempts us to meet our physical and emotional needs in ways which do not honor God and which will lead to hurt and pain eventually. So, Jesus has a legitimate need. He's hungry. But Jesus sees right through Satan's ploy, and Jesus responds with the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, and Satan flees. Take two. Satan comes back in verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So here, the devil tempts Jesus with with power and acclaim. He says, this all will belong to you. Just simply bend the knee just for a moment. And you'll you'll have all this power, all this acclaim. And he strikes at what he thinks is a potential weak spot in Jesus. Remember what Jesus, where he came from, what what he what he had, what he what he gave up. Jesus, we're told in Philippians 2, was in very nature God and did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of, of, of a servant. He he gives up he gives up um, He's, used, he's, in, he's been for eternity, he's been worshipped, he's been adored, he's had all things under him, all power, and he gives up. He gives those things up for us. He comes to earth and gives those things up for us. And so this devil, in essence, is saying, you know, a those, those, little bit of what you gave up, the, the authority and, and, the, and the power and the splendor, you, you can have it here on earth, Just just worship me. Now, how does that apply to us? As human beings, we have a, a need, an innate desire to worship. We are created for worship. That, that's part of what it means to be designed in God's image. We have this drive to worship. And we will worship something or someone. Uh, we, we, we can't not worship. And the devil takes that very real need, this part of what it means to be created in God's image. He takes this and, and he tempts us to give our worship to false idols that will never bring us peace and love or lasting joy. So how does Jesus respond? What can we learn from him? Again, he responds with God's word. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Fear the Lord your God. Worship and serve him only. And he flees. Take three. So the devil, he, he ups the ante. Jesus has been throwing scripture back at him, rebuking him, rebutting him. And so Satan takes a page from Jesus' book and he uses Satan to tempt Jesus. He takes a few verses from Psalm 91 and, and he says, If you're the Son of God, do something spectacular. Prove your identity. If you're the Son of God, then surely God will not let any harm come to you. Or don't you trust your father's word. It it says it right here. Don't you trust that? This can be a particularly dangerous and effective tactic by Satan. He'll, He'll take scripture, he'll distort it, he'll twist it, he'll misapply it, and tempt us to do the same. And you can see where this has happened over the course of Church history, from time to time, where different groups of people take a, a portion of Scripture and they and they and they twist it, they they distort it, they misapply it. And perhaps the most galling example of this is is Christians who interpreted Scripture in such a way as to justify racism and slavery. That's why it's so important for us to know all of God's Word and to be in relationship with other Christians, to study humbly and diligently so as not to fall into Satan's traps. And again, Jesus responds with God's word. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Satan cannot stand against truth. He can't stand the truth. He hates the truth. Jesus in John 8 calls him the the father of lies. If his lips are moving, then he's lying. But God always speaks the truth. Jesus called himself the truth. Jesus said, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And Satan, he tries to tie us up in knots. He wants to discourage us, to accuse us, to destroy us. But he cannot stand against the truth of God's word. He has been defeated by Jesus on the cross and through the empty tomb. Paul tells us in the spiritual battle we are in against Satan and his forces that we have been given, what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so we should wield it. We should know it. Because when we speak truth, Satan will flee. And we can pray God's word and strongholds in our lives or in our world will come down and we can claim God's promises and stand firm next week we're going to dig into some of those resources more in depth and so I hope you'll join us let's pray father we thank you for your word lord we thank you that uh, it is truth we thank you that it's powerful that is sharper than a double-edged sword. Uh, Lord, we we thank you that is uh, a weapon we can use to defeat Satan. Uh, Lord, uh, guard us so that we, our hearts and our minds, so we do not fall into the temptation of using your word as a weapon uh, to twist or distort or to justify things which do not honor you. Lord, help us to to not listen to the accusations and lies that Satan brings, uh, but to, to, um, to, to uh, claim our identity in you, that we are children of God, that we are saved by Jesus and sealed through the Holy Spirit, and that we can have victory over sin and Satan and, yes, even death, as we trust in Jesus and we lean on him, As we stand upon his promises, we offer ourselves to you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.